Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Hey, everybody, it's Reed. Before we get started, I just want to remind everyone that the fight that we're facing is not about right versus left, and it's not about Republicans versus Democrats. It's about democracy versus authoritarianism, and never, ever let anybody tell you different. The next 18 months will be the most crucial months in American political history since 1860. Think about that, gang. Now is the time to get involved. Go to jointheunion.us and sign up to be part of the pro-democracy army that will lead us to victory next year. And now, on with the show. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm joined by Tina Wynn, national correspondent with Puck News. Prior to her time at Puck, Tina wrote for Media, Vanity Fair, and Politico. Today, we are together in studio here in Washington, D.C. Tina, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. My uh, gosh. So you are, you know, Puck has been around, what, a year, year and a half? Yeah, I'm like we're about to hit our two-year. Uh, yeah, and so, you know, you guys cover politics, media, entertainment, the economy. You guys sort of captured all. A collection, I would say, of very well-established reporters who basically know the inside of everything all the time. And so uh, how's it going here two years in? Oh, my God. I'm having the time of my life. (laughs) I think one of the things that it's very unique about Puck is that it is the centers of all of these universes colliding with each other. So not only do you get a peek into these worlds that like I've never really thought of before, like entertainment. We just hired this woman, Lauren Sherman, who does deep dives into the fashion industry. Bill Cohen like has been on Wall Street coverage for like decades and has and is like able to get Warren Buffett on the phone and be like, hey, can I interview you for my uh, newsletter? And Warren's like, yeah, of course. But you also start seeing the ways that these worlds all intersect with each other. So, for instance, Teddy Schleifer, who was our Silicon Valley correspondent and covered billionaires and their philanthropy efforts, was starting to dig into what SBF is doing. Got one of the very first interviews with SBF after he was Sam Bankman Freed, the crypto dude. Soon to be federal inmate, I assume. Yeah, exactly. Or and eventually, I should say, <laughs> be federal inmate. High likelihood. Very yeah. high likelihood. Right. Teddy actually got this crazy interview. I highly recommend people find it, where SBF has known Teddy for years. And Teddy was zeroing in on his philanthropy efforts back in 2019 when he was this nobody. And so fast forward to when he's under house arrest in Palo Alto, SBF suddenly texts Teddy out of the blue and says, hey, do you want to come hang out with me? And Teddy's like, "Okay, sure. So he hops on this lift that very night to Palo Alto. SBF just brings him to his dining room. There are no lawyers. There are no PR agents. His parents are upstairs not paying attention to their son. It's just Teddy Sandbaker Freed, a dog named Sandor. And Teddy gets like this hour long conversation with him about like what he's doing right now what he views the future of philanthropy to look like, altruistic philanthropy. And my boss always says this as a tagline, but I'm kind of believing it to be true. It's the only kind of stuff you would see at Puck. Well, 
Listen, I mean, you know, if you're going to have a 20 something guy who just moved out of the Bahamas back into his parents' house while he awaits trial, you know, that's a very unique kind of thing. And and I'm sure that Sam's attorneys were just beyond pleased. I'm sure they were. Over. Um, but let's talk about you. So you're covering, you know, the political beat. You wrote a piece recently called the Taliban 20s McCarthy to do list. And and the reason why I bring up that piece is that last night as we're recording this, the Republicans in the U.S. House passed their quote unquote debt ceiling thing by, I think, two votes or three votes. But the thrust of your story, and I think it's important for folks to understand this, was that I think you have Gates on the record saying we haven't gotten nearly enough for this hostage yet. And he's talking about the Speaker of the House of the United States. It's not talking about some backbencher who's always intransigent. He's talking about the Speaker, um, but also the outside political forces working on these MAGA types. And also that for so many of these people, like they code it in debt, that spending's out of control, et cetera, et cetera, although they passed three debt ceiling increases under Trump and Trump said you should never use this as a weapon, et cetera, et cetera. But it's an ideological fight. It is not like what's good for the GDP to debt ratio of the United States. It's how much chaos can we create to make life harder for Joe Biden? Absolutely. So let's dial back a couple of months ago when the speaker battle is going on. These 19 to 20 congressmen representatives just come out of the woodwork and say, no, we will not let Kevin McCarthy become speaker. And they keep voting and they keep voting and they keep voting. And McCarthy suddenly realizes, OK, it's not just like five intransigents and I can pick off one or two of them. It is this united block that just came out of nowhere that had been organizing for months behind his back that he only learned about the morning of the election. McCarthy, true legislative strategist. Yes, exactly. I actually did a piece on Don Bacon, who is a representative who supported McCarthy. From Nebraska. From Nebraska. Yes. He goes on front of the cameras and calls this group the Taliban 19 or the Taliban 20. And I'm like, that's actually kind of a perfect way to do it because they will literally hold things hostage and threaten to blow them up if they don't get their way. And really speaks to most of the Republican Party at this point. I'm, you know, a meaningful minority and the other ones just kind of go, we'll go along, along with it right. because otherwise their constituents, the MAGA ones, will start calling for blood. So I talked to the people who organized this coup, essentially, and they were like, we have these demands. We have these very ideological demands. Some of us really just don't like McCarthy. Some of us are like I called Matt Gates a MAGA sadist who just hates McCarthy by principle. Then there are people like Chip Roy who want procedural things to go over in order to give like a small minority a say in outsized Congress, voice, yeah. an outsized voice. Then there are people who wanted ideological things. There were people who were pissed off that McCarthy backed primary opponents against them that were more, quote unquote, establishment. And then when the MAGA candidates ended up winning, he just kind of backed off and went like, mm, nope, nope. OK, you just like twist in the wind, whatever. And they wanted McCarthy to stop interfering in primaries just so the MAGA candidate, by measure of being more extremist, would get a more diehard group of primary voters, bulldoze their way through the primary. Will they win the general election? Who knows? Just as long as the purest candidate is running. Right. That's an important distinction, which is the voters don't even necessarily care if that candidate wins. They just want to make sure it's their candidate that is running, because if the candidate wins, great. And if the candidate loses, then great. We can kick the hell out of whoever wins. Right. Because we really don't like governing anyway. 
So, yeah, then the thing that is crucial to understanding what's going on here is that the 20 and McCarthy don't write down on paper exactly what it is that they agreed to. So the rest of the Republican caucus starts finding out when all of a sudden these things get done. Like, okay, Ralph Norman and these other guys are becoming chairs of committees. All of a sudden, the guy that McCarthy promises one thing to doesn't get the thing. But they stick around for it. McCarthy got to leadership like he was the minority whip and even the majority whip by dent of his ability to raise money. He's never been a good legislator, you know, whether or not it's Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer, Mitch McConnell, like these people know their conferences backward and forward. I was having dinner with my parents last night and my dad worked on the Hill for a million years. Like he was talking about how like Boehner, Boehner had been a backbencher both in the minority and the majority. And so he understood his conference. He understood what they needed. Now, again, those were, quote unquote, reasonable people. Now, McCarthy is not dealing with reasonable people, but he's also invertebrate. Right. So he's going to take whatever the path of least resistance is to ultimately get those votes. And if that means he's got to screw over a bunch of guys that helped him out over the years, well, that's what he's going to do. And if it means that he like has to strap on a suicide vest in order to get like Lauren Bilbert's vote, then he'll do it. Like one of the things that the 20 themselves kind of viewed as a shiny object, but used as great leverage against McCarthy was that we will give you your votes if you allow us to lower the threshold for the motion to vacate vote. Now, that means they can like kick the speaker out. And initially, the threat of a motion to vacate vote was the thing that pushed Boehner out in 2015. Nancy Pelosi comes in, kind of slips into an omnibus bill. Oh, if you want to pull a motion to vacate vote, you need half the conference. And when McCarthy comes back in, the Republicans regain control of the House. The 20 go, all right, we want you to lower the threshold back down to one person. So one person can stand up and be like, hey, I'd like to call a vote of no confidence on McCarthy just to kick him out. And then that looks bad for McCarthy. Because, of course, theoretically, all the Democrats would vote for that and enough Republicans would vote for that, where then, of course, you'd be back into chaos, which, again, so many of these people, whether or not it's Gates or Boebert or Green, are perfectly happy with. Oh, yeah. I mean, they're agents of chaos. Again, for them, and if you just as an aside, if you look at like, Every day now that Marjorie Taylor Greene is on the dais of a committee, she is saying something more awful, more disreputable. Right. I mean, at one point she like literally lost. It was it last week when she had the Homeland Security secretary. She called him a liar. She doesn't even know the rules. And so she loses all her other time. Like she's not allowed to speak the rest of the hearing right. because they don't even they don't care about the rules so much. They don't even know. They don't care about the rules and they can just like. All you really need at that point is just like the clip of Green calling herself a liar. Right. So let's fast forward now, because now we've got this debt ceiling thing. Right. So the White House, President Biden, were very, very clear, like we want a clean debt ceiling increase, which basically means the government's got to borrow more money, got to sell more bonds to fund government operations. And we're not being held hostage on this. We're not going to negotiate spending cuts against it. Because it was you guys who took dad's black card to the club and ran up all the bills. And now you're asking us to pay for it. You know, cuts to veterans services, cuts to SNAP benefits, you know, what we used to call food stamps. But then you also see like Trump and we'll get to him. You know, you've seen this rhetoric now out of Trump, the Republicans, MAGA. I assume a lot of it's being pushed across Russia and everything else, which is like, Biden's going to tank the economy. Biden's going to crash the economy. Biden's going to create a banking crisis because he won't agree to spending cuts. Like there's a very dialed in sort of rhetoric that they're using. But the truth is, is that like it's up to the House 
ultimately to do to start this. But of course, it's all performative because it's not going to pass the Senate and Biden wouldn't sign it anyway. So now we're here. We're weeks away from theoretical default. But even the, in this story you wrote, the outside group is at CRA. Yeah. The Center for Renewing America. Yeah, The Center for Renewing America. Like they don't even believe that defaults a thing. Right. So the Center for uh, Renewing America that's an outside group run by Russ Vaught, who used to be the director of the um, Office of Management and Budget under the Trump administration. And this guy is a NatCon diehard MAGA guy who does not believe in, I would say, programs that promote diversity initiatives. He believes that the federal government has been weaponized against conservatives. And uh, the CRA is partnered with this thing called the Conservative Partnership Institute, which has is turned the Mark into, Meadows operation. Yeah, the Mark Meadows operation. The best way you could call it is like the MAGA version of the Heritage Foundation. Right. They support candidates. They literally have this podcast for the junior members of Congress who came in under the MAGA banner. They have a whole studio yeah. set up, the whole thing. And remember, and, and I think it's always important when we talk about this Conservative Partnership Institute, this is the group that just bought a building on Capitol Hill. They bought some like 2000 acre retreat on the eastern shore of Maryland to train people. And that's the one thing, Tina, that's always fascinating. It's a little off topic is how much money flows into these groups. Mm, oh, for sure. Every year. It, what, what we don't understand about it, I think, too often is it, it's like, yes, it's political. It, it's social welfare money or charitable money. But the truth is it all promotes a political outcome that really the left, I mean, yeah, you mentioned the Center for American Progress and, and those sorts of groups, but they don't have nearly like when the CPI needs something, when Meadows needs something, somebody strokes a check, right. somebody sends a wire. The conservatives have really dialed in that flood of money that I think I'll call ourselves the pro-democracy movement. And I think the Democrats who spend plenty of money, don't get me wrong, haven't understood about the front groups and how important they are to the conservative movement in this country. Oh, absolutely. And the conservative movement also has groups in state governments, local governments, state legislatures literally go off to a camp called the American Legislative Exchange Council to do boot camps on legislation and how to do votes and stuff. Remember, and all the anti-voting stuff in 21 came out of the Heritage Foundation. And there's video of the woman who runs, I don't know if, if it was this particular thing, who like Either they sent the bills themselves to these legislatures or they had what they called sentinels out in the states. They were basically cat's paws who brought this legislation to a given legislator in Arizona or wherever it was, and they introduced it. So there was a step away from the Heritage Foundation or whoever. So, I mean, it's diabolical. It's really dialed into a lot of civic institutions in America that I don't think most Americans understand exist. If you want to go into my torrid backstory, the reason I have become like the quote unquote MAGA reporter is because when I was in college, I sort of like got looped into these conservative institutions. I literally was trained in conservative journalism camp to become a journalist and right. bring these ideas into the mainstream publications. Over time, I think people have realized that at least donors have realized that it's not enough to send libertarian or conservative leaning journalists into mainstream organizations so much as it is like create our own institutions, replace these dying local and state right. publications and newspapers, swoop in, create like these blogs, be like, we are reporters. We're going to go to the Wisconsin state capitol. Also, aren't teacher unions bad? They're really, really bad. And uh, I recall pretty distinctly that. 
they pitch themselves to young people with things like scholarships, right. career development opportunities. If you're like a young, bright person, maybe not with a lot of money, but highly ambitious, you kind of go like, oh, man, yeah, this sounds cool. I definitely want to like get a paid internship in journalism. Right. And then two or three years later, you find yourself being like, well, I don't have any opportunities except this like right wing blog out of Colorado that really wants me to write about how Jared Paulus is bad. So I got out of that world, like kind of quit, moved to New York, wrote a food blog for like three years. Moved back into political writing through this blog called Mediaite, ended up at Vanity Fair and was like, OK, you know what? I get to, you know, do Christopher Hitchens type gonzo journalism stuff. <laughs> this sounds great. Everything's going to be wonderful. And then Trump comes down the golden escalator literally the second day of my job. And as the conservative movement starts metastasizing from Tea Party libertarianism, free marketeering to populist, nativist, right. uh, nationalist, nationalist right. isolationist rhetoric, I start seeing the movement that I used to be part of start being pulled in that direction. And I'm literally working in the mainstream media at this point. So everyone's like, what the hell is going on here? And my boss is like, Tiana, why do you keep talking about Steve Bannon and Breitbart? And like, how do you know these people? Right. Hey, can you write about these people? Sure. And then uh, yada, yada, yada. And now I'm the MAGA reporter. Right. You know, it's interesting just to talk about the media for a second, because obviously Fox has been in the news a lot because they can Tucker Carlson. But it's not just Fox. It's OANN. It's the Right Side Broadcast Network. Dan Bongino. All these podcasts that pop up like, you know, mushrooms after a rainstorm. Sinclair, right, buys up all these local radio stations. Salem. You know, communications buys up all these radio stations. Elon Musk buys Twitter. Right. The conservative movement, such as it is, is on the march in American media and doesn't look like many people are trying to stop them. I mean, here's the thing is that if you listen to conservative media, they do make a good point about how flow of information comes from a bunch of very powerful institutions, primarily based in New York at this point, that control right. the flow of information. So things like, obviously, the New York Times, whatever, those are freestanding publications. But things like Google, which hosts these services, DirecTV, which carries these networks, they are easily pressured by outside liberal groups to drop these networks, to drop these conservative outlets. So Breitbart, for instance, back in 2017, seemed like it was going to be ascendant. Steve Bannon left Breitbart to go to the White House. There was all this hullabaloo about like, Breitbart's now going legitimate. Breitbart's now going to be a conservative publication that holds the libs accountable. And then a group called Sleeping Giants started running this campaign, pressuring Google to drop their programmatic advertising on the site. So Breitbart had been relying on Google to funnel ad dollars towards them. So this campaign group starts hitting up all of the blue chip advertisers, the people with money. They start saying, hey, your stuff's appearing on Breitbart, this quote unquote white nationalist site. You got to take it down. And they start taking it down. And it really pummels Breitbart in the face. And that is sort of the same thing as what happened to Tucker Carlson just now. Just for full disclosure, I used to work at The Daily Caller between like sometime in like 2011, 2012, and he was my boss back then. But I do kind of take that experience and use it to look at what's happening here, which is that Wall Street Journal, New York Times is reporting this. One of the many reasons that Fox took Tucker off the air is that 
he may have had a giant audience, like the biggest audience in cable news and had arguably the most influence in the current Republican Party. The thing is, is that his rhetoric and his coverage and all of the content of his show was so inflammatory, controversial, what have you, that the advertisers that would have paid Fox money for that giant audience were like, nope, we really don't want to air like Ford F-150 ads next to Tucker Carlson. Gold, bomb shelters, the MyPillow guy, Patriot Mobile. They're not mainstream advertisers. They're not mainstream advertisers, and they really don't have the money to justify keeping Tucker on the air. So Tucker Carlson tonight becomes a money pit. Fox is like, oh, well, he's the most popular guy on TV. We can't really get rid of him, but we're losing money on this guy. And then according to The Wall Street Journal, like all of these texts come out in the Dominion case and they're like, oh, man, now it's time to fire Tucker. I'm coming out with a story on this that should publish on Thursday, but I can tell you so far that the Tucker camp has a very different view on how things went down, and that view is going to dictate the new arc of Tucker's career. Read this at puck.news when it comes out, guys. Um, Well, and he put out a video last night that was like two minutes and 15 seconds. You know, what I found about the, Tina, about the language was... It was dog whistle laden. Normally, he was a bullhorn guy. But in this video, he's very intentionally just using the dog whistles. Right. He's talking about freedom and, you know, demographic change. But he uses these very sort of anodyne words when up until Monday or Friday night, I guess he would use all of the words out loud. And it it was an interesting transformation to see. You know, I, I heard one story that was about editorial control. I mean, what editorial control was there? Like what line didn't he cross? (laughs) Right. The idea of editorial control on Tucker up until Friday night was a farce. There was no editorial control there because I have to assume that like Fox Legal at some point watched the show every night. and We're just like, oh, God, oh, God, oh, God. But I think there's also the part too. you know, you talk about it's ultimately a business decision, right? It's Rupert's radio station. Tucker Carlson's a DJ in afternoon drive. You know what? The DJ gets canned. The guy still owns the radio station. Right. So let me put on my uh, MAGA Viking hat for a second to um, translate what the dog whistle you're talking about means to the audience that Tucker's cultivated. Everyone I've talked to who's like involved in the MAGA media industry, they believe that Tucker could easily take away 20 to 30 percent of Fox's audience because the only reason that like a giant section of MAGA paid attention to Fox was because of Tucker. The reason that people started subscribing for Fox Nation, their streaming service, was because Tucker put these documentaries on there. The reason that people went to Fox just for Tucker was because they're like, this is the only guy who, quote unquote, says it as it is. And he also provided a contrast to Hannity to Laura Ingram, primarily Hannity. Well, because Sean Hannity's like the, pardon my French, but like what I used to call when I lived here in Washington, D.C., the FUMU principle, like fuck up, move up. Like this guy has no business whatsoever with a primetime show anywhere. He should be like a local DJ in Pittsfield, Massachusetts, <laughs> right? Like bothering the locals and no one else. The way that one person described it to me close to Tucker was like the current Fox lineup is quote unquote boomer slop. Mm -hmm. So it targets an older demographic that is kind of traditionally Republican. We'll probably tune out at Fox after Hannity or whatever. 
Tucker's audience is primarily younger, more MAGA, under 55, a demographic that Fox was really trying to capture. But the thing is that under 55 demographic is like Trumpy and MAGA-y, for lack of a better term. And so what Tucker is trying to do right now is to play into that audience, tap into that disaffection they have with, quote unquote, mainstream media. Ultimately, Fox News is a media company that's run out of New York City by a billionaire. Just like those three factors alone is enough for those MAGA voters to just like drop Fox completely and and go over to wherever it is Tucker ends up going. And you saw it on social media, you know, never Fox. They gave into the woke brigade. You know, Marjorie Taylor Greene says, I'll follow Tucker anywhere. But I think your point about who was watching this is really important because I like I have family where Fox is on all day. It's on all day in the house. It's background noise. Right. And they would watch Tucker, but they weren't. Again, it was a little much for them. These are people who were mainstream conservatives and are sort of now like in the wake of MAGA. Right. They sort of follow the wake. But the thing and I think this is really important is the people you're talking about with Tucker are Gen Xers. Probably a lot of them who are college educated, professionals, probably pretty high income demographics. And I think this is one thing as a proud Gen Xer myself is these are people like me and they're tuning into Tucker. And the more he'll dish them, the more they'll scoop it up. Right. I think the video itself, as of this morning, had 12.7 million views. And um, another point that people made to me was that, yeah, cool. Three million people watch Tucker every night on Fox. Cable is a dying medium. Three million people is like if that was a broadcast show in the 90s, that show would get canned immediately. (laughs) Right. Right. (laughs) So um, but they were like, okay, three million people are watching Tucker here. Millions and millions more are watching Tucker's monologue every night on YouTube. That is a metric you should be paying attention to. And I want to say this is that the conservative media outlets, I feel like, have really and I'm going to use this word intentionally, have weaponized that sort of clipping and sharing stuff. And because they're so networked in ways that you probably understand even better than I do, because remember when I was a Republican, like I was a rhino, proud rhino, right? Because I was never a conservative. I was a Republican. They scared me. Right. Like Gary with the red tie and the crazy eyes. He was at the table. But like Gary scared everybody. Gary's in charge now. And so like those I'm going to call them subterranean, you know, internet uh, people networks. Yeah, because normal people, humans don't see it. But this movement does. And that's where they get everything. And that's why they're so in the bubble all the time. Right. So, for example, when Fox settled with Dominion, you know, Joe Trippy, senior advisor of the Lincoln Project, was having a beer with a buddy of his who happens to be a bad guy, had no idea. Trigvi Olson, senior advisor of ours, his mom, Western Wisconsin, excuse me, MAGA person, had no idea. But here's the thing. Fox can't hide this one, right? They could hide Dominion. They can't hide firing Tucker. Right. That was a dangerous move for them. Like, I don't know how it is they'll be able to retain that audience. If I know Tucker, and I think I understand him pretty well at this point, he doesn't really need the money. Um, It'd be nice for him to have the money. He would prefer his megaphone, which is why you saw him be so cagey in that video. Like from all the reporting I've seen so far, his contract runs out in 2024. I don't know how much Fox will be able to prevent him from saying anything. I imagine right now behind the scenes, they are really, really trying to get him to 
sign an NDA, sign a non-disparagement agreement, not be able to run out there and tell his entire audience, Fox is so bad that you need to drop Fox, you need to cut cable, follow me to, I don't know, Rumble or whatever. Um, I can safely say that he's probably not going to go to like Newsmax or OAN because it's not carried by as many systems. So people would have to pay a premium to go to OAN. I don't think OAN could match or go better than Tucker's salary. And they'd have to pay him way, 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 way more in order for him to have like a tinier audience, which why would you? And I kind of see the same for Newsmax. It's just kind of too small and doesn't have the same production value that Tucker is able to command. Right. But there are plenty, you know, there's Daily Wire, there's the blaze right there are other people out there there are other people out there but also tucker's brand his own personal brand is as big if not bigger than those all of these people and why would he want to be an employee of theirs at this point why would he want to have someone else control what it is he's saying he literally left fox because of this editorial control issue why would he want to repeat that with another network that is trying to make money off of him right well thinking about maga Tucker's the tribune. Trump is the leader. And those two things are symbiotic, but they're not necessarily always in line with one another. Right. Which we know Tucker hates Trump. Now, he bent the knee a couple of weeks ago when he had to. Right. Because that's where his audience was like. So he's willing to do that. I mean, Tucker's not a dumb guy. Right. Like he knows what Trump is. He knows what he does every night and he does it anyway. But, you know, he had to bend the knee and Now, maybe he has transformed and now he really believes this stuff. I don't know. But even if he doesn't believe it, he's still going to have to do it because, to your point, like that's where his audience is. And his audience is pretty Trumpy, right? They're pretty MAGA. And Trump, I think the MAGA movement, as I've said previously on the show, has moved past Trump. It's crazier than he is now. And you can see him trying to catch up with it. And you can see evidence of this, I think, in a lot of these state legislatures and everything else. But how does that relationship work now? Because as bad as I believe they are for the country and the world, they're good for each other. Mm, for sure. One of the things that I keep hearing every time I talk to anyone about Tucker is that the Republican Party needed Tucker and they needed his APM platform in order to speak to a Republican audience. Trump also, depending on how well Tucker can retain that audience yeah. going forward, Republicans will try to follow Tucker's audience as well. Trump will try to follow Tucker's audience. It's more of a symbiotic relationship than anything. If you remember back in 2020, Tucker was one of the first people to say, hey, COVID's bad. We should take it seriously. You should stop being so cavalier about it, Trump. And then Trump listened. And a story came out about Tucker literally traveling to Mar-a-Lago to have dinner. Stop it. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll say this about the MAGA movement. They have ideals And they view Trump as an imperfect avatar of them. They don't really like how he kind of goes back and forth on things, but they also view him as a deal maker. And in order to get certain principles of theirs passed, they're willing to put up with a couple of step backs in legislative priorities, executive priorities, whatever, in order to get what it is they want most passed. So they're like, all right, sure, we'll like pass a bigger debt ceiling, but we need that wall, man. We need you to close those borders. We need you to like with like get out of the Iran deal, nuclear deal. People like DeSantis. I think one of the reasons that you're seeing DeSantis fall in the polls right now. Sure, he's more of a purist. Sure, he's trying to enact a specific culture war vision in Florida. The initial wave of him being popular was 
that he was able to, you know, dewokeify schools and fight against Disney. Well, but also he was credentialed. Yeah, he was credentialed. Right. He was a strong executive. But he also had Harvard. He had Yale. He had the Navy. Right. Good looking family. But the difference between them is aesthetic. It's not substantive. MAGA is very aesthetic. MAGA really cares about image and they care about virality and they care the most about personality. And DeSantis has not been presenting himself as a fighter to the extent that Trump is. But this is the thing I think is a, is a huge point. And I think that both Trump and Carlson have this, which is they understand it's a show. Trump goes on stage and he's giving you a show. The MAGAs love the show. Why is it that like, you know, DeSantis has so many other problems as a candidate aside from like, you know, the MAGA stuff. But you see, like even with Nikki Haley, right? I mean, her rollout event when she launched for her president, I set that event up in 1999 in Iowa for George W. Bush. It's not what their voters want. It's why they're willing to put up with Trump doing a goofy dance to YMCA because it's a show. Carlson gives them a show. They're not politicians. These other people, even DeSantis, as awful as he is and the way that he's running Florida, is a conventional politician. The Tucker primary demanded he say something bad about Ukraine. He says something bad about Ukraine. The donors, his big donors, who are all globalists because they live in New York, are like, you can't say that. And he walks it back. Trump would never walk it back. He doesn't care. Exactly. Exactly. And DeSantis doing all of the MAGA policies, but then at the crucial moment when it appears that Trump is going to be indicted, hitting him about taking money from a porn star. The first thing my a lot of my sources did, even the ones who were pro DeSantis, but like had a really good line into the MAGA mindset, they hit me up and they're like, that was the worst thing DeSantis could have done. And I'm right. like, wait, what? And they're like, yeah. So what he could have done was stand up for MAGA principle and say, look, I'm going to put aside my petty differences with Trump. Like, I will try to right. prevent him from being arrested. You know, legally, he probably can't. Actually, he definitely can't. The Constitution says he can't. But it's all about the posture. It is all about the show of magnanimity, the show of like, I will put aside my petty differences in order to protect this principle. He probably would have come out ahead if he had done that. Instead, he goes, not my problem. Also, you know what? He may have given money to a porn star. I couldn't have possibly ever done know anything about that. And that made him look petty. That made him look weak. And that made him look like he was just kind of faking the MAGA well, he in is order petty. to get away. Well, yeah. one, he's a cynic. He is faking the MAGA. Two, he is petty. And three, he is weak. I mean, the thing about running for president, and if he hasn't learned this yet, and it doesn't sound like he has, is that there are no shadows left. There's no place to hide when you decide to do this. Now, it sounds like based on reporting that he's going to launch an exploratory campaign sometime next month, right? Middle of next month after the Florida legislative session is over. But like, there's when you run for president, no place to hide. And this is one of those things that I think is so indicative of the Republican Party today. Look, they've all made the deal with the devil. Now, you can decide whether or not you want Trump to be the devil or if he revealed the devil or whatever. But here's the thing is to run against Trump, you have to basically be completely anti-Trump. There's no middle ground. If you're totally with him, then why are you running? And if you're like, oh, I like his policies, but I don't like him, not enough. Still. Why are you doing this? Because you can make an argument again. I probably would that his policies weren't very good either. You have to fight Trump in three, four, five dimensions. These people are all conventional in their own ways. And like the pudding ad that Trump put out, right, as ridiculous as it is, 
There's a reason they did it. There's a reason they did it that way. And the DeSantis people couldn't in a million years, the Haley people, the Scott people, the Pence people couldn't in a million years figure out how to do that because they don't own the chip. They haven't had the chip because what they don't understand is like the game that we're in is not the game of 1999 or even 2014 or even 2020, honestly. Right. Or even 2020. And so for a guy like DeSantis, like he's got to make a choice, which is he either backs down completely or you're going to fly straight into the propeller. And he's chosen to fly into the propeller, which will probably be his reward will be three and a half more years in Tallahassee, which I'm I doubt he really wants. Mm. And my colleague Tara Palmieri was actually doing this story about whether the Florida legislators who were willing to sign through his agenda are getting kind of tired of him right, I've heard running for president, yeah. like running for fake president. I don't right. know how to put whatever he's doing right now. Cosplaying as president. Right. But he's the guy that paid for the cheap costume, right? Like he didn't go out and get the real stormtrooper outfit. He got the one like you would have gotten in a box in the 80s, right? It was like a weird plastic mask and like Basically a garbage bag that painted like a stormtrooper. No, if you want the real version, you have to go to Lucasfilm and pay right. like a million dollars right. for and the first one that yeah. was ever worn. <laughs> uh, right. And he's not doing that. Probably not. No. OK, so this is my big brain galaxy brain analysis of it. I think the reason that DeSantis won with such a giant margin in 2020 was because he smartly understood the battleground he was playing on in Florida, which is an entire state that is so grateful that he had life be normal during COVID. And that is the record he's been running on. I was at the Heritage Foundation Leadership Summit last Friday or so, and he gave a speech there. And most of it was I stood up against Anthony Fauci. I kept Florida open. I'm making sure that these woke children aren't learning about gay stuff up till third grade. That was acceptable to Florida parents. Being able to put their children in school right. was acceptable to sure. Florida parents. Like doing the bare minimum to replicate normal life. Huge. Absolutely huge. If you are thinking in like post-traumatic COVID fear disorder 2021, 2022, that seems to be over now. Well, also, let's it this didn't occur in a vacuum. He also ran against a guy who's the 31 flavors of Florida politics. Charlie Crist had literally been everything. To everybody, he's beyond old, right? He wasn't a good candidate. He, I mean, the Florida Democratic Party, there's more of us in this room and there's only two of us and there are in the Florida Democratic Party at this point. So, like, it wasn't exactly like stiff competition. Either. Right, exactly. So if he is not able to articulate a future that he can enact and if Disney keeps kicking his ass in the most embarrassing ways. Right. Which I think they will continue to do. Mm, they're very good at like, look. If you're going up against Disney, you're going to have to realize, one, they have so many lawyers. Two, they have so much money. Three, they understand media because they are the media. They own everything. And DeSantis owns Florida, but like he's running for president of the entire country. But that parochialism is not it's not unusual. I got asked a question when I recorded on Monday about like, why is DeSantis in Israel today? Why was DeSantis in Japan? Because. He's trying. And look, this is not an unusual thing. Remember, remember the speech Obama gave in Berlin. These guys want to be seen as standing on the international stage, that they can stand there and be the president. The problem is, is that if you can't make the case at home, you know, flying to Tokyo, flying to Tel Aviv isn't going to do it either. Yeah, that bobblehead moment with the gaping mouth. Like when we go back to the showmanship, America and voters were very good at taking one moment 
where the person looks kind of embarrassing and weak and then blowing it up to define that person's life forever, like yeah, the, Marco, sure. the Marco Rubio water bottle incident. Yeah. I mean, think about, you know, George H.W. Bush looking at his watch, Michael Dukakis in the tank. You know, John Kerry had several. But, you know, when he's in the like the radiation suit, right, or when he's windsurfing, I mean, how much currency do we get out of the windsurfing video, right? Right. But that's the point is like, yes, but see, that's the difference is Trump can do all that stuff and he gets away with it because he doesn't care and his people don't care. DeSantis can't get away with it because the prism that people see him through is, quote unquote, normal. Nobody thinks Trump's normal. Right. So he isn't judged by those standards. You know, I was having coffee with a friend of mine this morning, and this is something that, that we've been talking about, you know, Rick and I in particular, but, you know, Stu and Joe and everybody else at the team is this Trump campaign is different, right? 16 was four idiots in an airplane. 2020 was the entire operation of the White House, the campaign, every other thing. And as disastrous as his presidency was and as disastrous as that campaign was, he still only lost by like 150,000 votes in the, in the target states. Now he's got two very smart people running the operation. And it looks like they've made some kind of deal with Antina where it's like, look, you go do whatever you do. You don't care about this stuff anyway, right? You don't care about the campaign. You just want to know two things. Is the money coming in and are you stealing it from me? And if the answer to the first is yes, and if the answer to the second is no, just let us do our thing and you go do your thing. And so far, again, this is why I don't think we should underestimate him next year. And I do think he is the presumptive nominee. This is a different operation. We should take it seriously. Yeah, like it is so surprisingly disciplined. And the things that Trump is doing right now were things that he was not doing in 2016, not doing in 2020. Like he's going to McDonald's counters and shaking people's hands. 2016 and 2020, obviously 2020, you couldn't right. shake anyone's hand. But in 2016, like he was known for rallies. He was known for big televised events. He was known for tweeting. And that was so counterintuitive. Like this time he's the one in diners in Iowa, but DeSantis has a reputation for being really, really, really bad at retail politics and can't shake people's hands or like even look them in the eye. So like that's actually a pretty smart move on the Trump campaign's part. Like remind everyone that Trump is charismatic and a human being. But but also DeSantis comes to Washington, D.C., meets with a bunch of member, Republican members of Congress. I don't think he was a Florida guy. I think maybe he was from Kentucky or Texas, one of them. This guy comes out and says, I just met with Ron DeSantis. He's a great guy. By the way, Trump 2024. Yeah. Like, how humiliating. Everything leading up to right now, I have been hearing out of Trump world. I've been hearing out of MAGA world. Like their position is it would be best for DeSantis to step down and support Trump this cycle right. so he can run in 2028. Otherwise, we're going to torch his reputation to the ground and take all of the political capital and leave him looking like a putting finger torture lawyer. Right. Um, <laughs> putting finger torture lawyer. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. Can DeSantis outmaneuver Trump on the public stage or will he like hide behind Christina Pushaw tweeting mean things out on his behalf? But see, this is in this. I'm glad you brought that up because this is the difference between this is that when you attack Trump personally, he responds personally. It's not like the old days when, you know, OK, you know, we did an oppo drop, you know, when I worked for McCain, we did an oppo drop on Romney with the dog on the car. And then, you know, that got Romney personally tied up. But then, you know, the the Romney campaign drops oppo on McCain. And it's like the rapid response guys going back and forth all day, all day, all day. Right. right. Trying to get a hit in. But Romney, you know, again, he's going to talk. Oh, it was a lovely dog or whatever. But 
if Christina Pushaw goes after Donald Trump, Donald Trump will attack Christina Pushaw. Oh, yeah. Right. He won't attack Ron DeSantis. Right. He'll go. She's crazy. She was in Belarus or whatever else. Like, you know, she got thrown out of the governor. He'll find something terrible to say. Right. About her. And then his people will all pile on her. And that's not what most staffers have signed up for. No, not at all. Like most staffers aren't signed up for that. Like he'll go after journalists. Like the dude is literally standing trial against an accusation of rape. And an Emerson poll dropped this morning saying this is the first time Trump has broken 55 percent of support. It's like, what, 63 percent of support. DeSantis has dropped down to 16 from 25. Like he's still popular. People will follow Trump to the ends of the earth as long as they view him as being persecuted by the deep state. DeSantis does not have that deep state credibility against him. And so now, look, you know, again, we've got Nikki Haley in the race. Tim Scott is doing something. I don't know what we'd call it. I don't think it's a campaign, but he's doing something. Pompeo's out. Pence is sort of still floating out there. It sounds like DeSantis is going to start, you know, again, exploring this thing next month. So, you know, we were a little bit concerned, candidly, like that this thing would be over like in June. Doesn't look like that'll be. But Trump's already saying, like, nobody asked me about debates. Right. So he's already sort of putting out there, like, why would I even stand on the stage with these people? He's going to play by his own rules and the rest of them have to sort of account for it. Mm -hmm. Although, honestly, do you think Ron DeSantis wants to go up against Donald Trump on a stage where Trump can probably just like play with him like a cat toy? Certainly not. That's the other part, too, is and I don't know if this is a symptom of Trumpism within the GOP or whatever. None of these people are very good politicians. They're not charismatic. I mean, Trump has charisma. It's a twisted charisma, but it exists. The rest of these people are not charismatic. And the problem is, is that they all live in the eclipse of Trump's shadow. And to get out of that, you have to be crazier than he is, which I think DeSantis has tried to do, but you can't really. Again, I always call it, it's like Google Translate, right? Trump is the native speaker. DeSantis speaks through the translator and the people know it. They know it's not his native language. Right. Although the funny thing is that like the people who he does gravitate towards are either super charismatic, like Marjorie Taylor Greene, who has somehow made most Republicans in Congress love her. She's the second most powerful person in the Republican conference. Oh, for sure. And then during the 2020 campaign, he was backing people like Dr. Oz, who knew how to perform in front of a camera, and Carrie Lake, who was a former television broadcaster. Like, these are the people that Trump sees as his heirs, people who can say the right MAGA things and look good doing it. Right. Well, so let's let's do this. So, you know, here we are. We're 18 months or so to Election Day 2024. Give us your sort of next 90 to 120 days. How does the summer roll out in your mind? Ooh, um, Trump does a bunch of campaigns, occasionally goes back to New York, puts on a couple of shows, perp walks and looking like he's being persecuted. DeSantis goes out and tries to capture the MAGA magic somehow. I'm not quite sure what that looks like. Tim Scott, Nikki Haley, they do whatever. Tucker Carlson dances around whatever legal battle is going on between his team and Fox News's team. We don't particularly know what happens to Tucker in the next couple of months, but I imagine he's going to try to find some way to come back. And watching whatever Tucker does is pretty crucial to like understanding what it is the Republican Party does. Because Tucker has the biggest audience. Tucker can define people's political views and political choices more than and anyone And political else. careers. Yeah, exactly. 
here's the thing about Tucker that a lot of people don't understand. Okay, you look at him and you're like, oh my God, you were on like mainstream cable. You were on like... He's done the full Carlson. Yeah. He's the only guy fired by all three networks. Exactly. That actually looks really good for him. Because that means that like he tried to do the cable news thing. They fired him. It's because he was speaking the truth too He's much. He's telling and- you the truth and they won't have it. He even basically said that. Right, exactly. And if he can't do it on Fox, then like what hope is there for America if Tucker Carlson, the guy who's been speaking it as it is, is being silenced by the mainstream media. And now Fox could be lumped into, quote unquote, the mainstream media now. And he genuinely believes this. Like, I think it's a mistake when people look at Tucker and think, oh, you went to prep school. Oh, your mother is an heiress. That's actually his stepmother. His actual mother This isn't a biography of his. His actual mother was like the San Francisco hippie who abandoned her kids early on. And his father was a broadcaster who wasn't making that much money. That puts a chip on your shoulder. But like the thing is, is now he has power. He has a giant megaphone. He's able to define a lot of people's views. Like that's power. And that's what he wants. Who wouldn't want that power, though? Right. Well, this has been fascinating. Before we let you go, where can our listeners and our viewers today find you online? So I barely tweet, but it's Tina underscore Nguyen. My Instagram is the last Nguyen. I tend to be more of a like silly person there. My actual work is at puck.news. And yeah, subscribe to Puck. All right. Absolutely. As always, gang, you can find me on Twitter and TikTok at Reed Galen on Instagram at Reed underscore Galen underscore LP. Tina Wynn, thank you for joining me and everybody else. We'll see you next time. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter, at Project Lincoln. And for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. If you want to message the podcast directly, please send an email to podcast at lincolnproject.us. And if you want to personally join the fight to save our nation's democracy, visit jointheunion.us. For The Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. I'll see you on the next episode.